It has been quoted many times that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. As many of you know, that phrase was popularized by Martin Luther King. Words not originate with him, but they came to be used as a sort of refrain in a number of speeches he gave. The reason why he used them frequently, it seemed, is because many people saw that concept as being the driving force behind much of what he was striving to accomplish. That drive being the belief that regardless of the world's events, regardless of how different we are, regardless of how good or bad times might become, that there is this one unifying narrative that ties it all together. A narrative that is pushing humanity forward towards an end that is inevitably good, desirable. And even though we cannot see that ending, as King often said, we know how to get there. That phrase and that belief continues to be quoted by many people throughout the years. But in an age where we seem to be increasingly fractured as a society, and in a culture where there are countless conflicting narratives that people try to push, That idea that we can all agree on one unifying plan and agree that that plan is for the good of all humanity, well, it seems a bit naive in the minds of a lot of people. It seems harder and harder to accept for we live in a world, again, of of conflicting beliefs. Not only that, as we continue to learn more, it appears to us that suffering is not diminishing. Rather, it continues to exist. Evil continues to persist. And so the idea that even if there is a unifying narrative that it is good, well, that seems naive. That seems blind to reality. Because of all of that, many people, rather than embracing this idea of some unifying plan, exist with the belief that, well, the truth is out there, but you you define it in however you want. You find meaning in whatever you desire. And you pick whatever path you choose. As we come to Genesis 11, however, we see that the age in which we live in does not rightly reflect the reality of a narrative. Because there is, in fact, a unifying narrative that does truly tie everything together. There is a plan, a plan that was in place before the foundations of the earth, and a plan that has continued to play out in these first 11 chapters of Genesis. As we look at chapter 11 today, my hope is that we can see the continuity of that plan, see the plan of God was never thrown off course. Rather, it continued to persist. As we see that continuity, I think we can also see, even in this genealogy, the thread that ties it all together. And in the end, I pray we're able to see that it is this plan, ultimately, that is headed in a virtuous direction. It is this plan that ultimately will bring us into glory. But it is a plan that will continue to take us down pathways none of us could ever predict. As we do this, my prayer is that we might walk away again with a growing appreciation, not of some unnamed arc of the moral universe, but a growing appreciation of a personal God who's revealed his will to us and who desires us to live in accordance with that will. With that being said, let me begin our time in prayer again and we will dive into this plan of God as it's seen in Genesis 11. God, again, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the words that we're able to sing to you. We thank you for the blessing it is to gather as brothers and sisters in Christ. God, I do not know the many difficulties these individuals have faced throughout the week, but you do. You know where every single individual here sits regarding their beliefs in you, regarding their current level of confidence, regarding their many relationships that perhaps are hanging in a balance even as we gather together. And so you know how tumultuous and chaotic this world can seem to each and every one of us today. But I pray, God, that you give us the faith to see that your plan is continuous. You give us the eyes to see not just the plan, but to see it as gracious, as a gift. And as we examine the plan today, even in Genesis 11, I pray that you inspire a greater sense of awe in every single one of us. And that we're able to walk away knowing that this plan is not just some external force out there, but it is your plan, and it is a plan in which we are all intricately involved, God. We love you, Father, and we thank you for revealing this plan to us. For anyone who is here yet today who does not yet know you, I pray that you bring them to a saving faith. I pray they see your truth for the first time. And I pray that we all walk out this morning with a greater sense of unity gathered around the same plan that you have given. Focus our attention now on your word, we pray. And we pray all these things according to your precious Son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, in arguing for the existence of 
that ongoing plan and, and arguing the eventual end it's bringing to, we have to begin with an appreciation or at least an agreement that the plan does exist. That is, there is a certain continuity that can be found, that it has been unbroken in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And it's that continuity that I want us to see from the get-go here in Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 through 32. And I think we can see it in two very important points of connection. Connection points from this genealogy, first to the promise of God, and second to the ongoing reality of the curse. To see these connections, I want us to begin by reading at least some of the genealogy, beginning in verse 10. And stick with me as we once again examine a number of names that are hard to pronounce, names I think that have a lot to teach us. Beginning again in Genesis 11, verse 10, we read, These are the records of the generation of Shem, Shem was 100 years old and became the father of a Parkshad two years after the flood. Shem lived 500 years after he became the father of a Parkshad and he had other sons and daughters. A Parkshad lived 35 years and became the father of Shelah. And a Parkshad lived 403 years after he became the father of Shelah. And he had other sons and daughters. Shelah lived 30 years and became the father of Eber. Shelah lived 403 years after he became the father of Eber and he had other sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and became the father of Peleg, and Eber lived 430 years after he became the father of Peleg, and he had other sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years, became the father of Ru, and Peleg lived 209 years after he became the father of Ru, and he had other sons and daughters. Ru lived 32 years and became the father of Sareg, and Ru lived 207 years after he became the father of Sareg, and he had other sons and daughters. Sareg lived 30 years and became the father of Nahor, and Sareg lived 200 years after he became the father of Nahor and had other sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years, became the father of Terah, and Nahor lived 119 years after he became the father of Terah, and he had other sons and daughters. Now as we read these names, and as we attempt to see how it's connected to the promise, we must be careful to not assume that the genealogy here in chapter 11 is just a, a repeat of the genealogy we had back in Genesis 10. Perhaps some of you have assumed that and even guessed we would skip over this genealogy because, let's face it, we spent a lot of time here just a few weeks ago. And while there is certainly some repetition of facts given in the genealogy of Genesis 10 and 11, upon closer examination, I think you can quickly see that the two genealogies are actually quite different. And the reason why they're quite different is because they serve two very different purposes. You see, you can turn back to Genesis 10 and, and just begin surveying the list of names that are given there. As you read through these names, you see that ge the genealogy of chapter 10 is concerned with far more people than Genesis 11. Part of that is because it covers all three sons of Noah, that is Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And a part, another part of that is because with each succeeding generation in Genesis 10, the author gives us a number of descendants. The result of that being that as you read through all these names, you are almost overwhelmed by the number of families represented here, and I think that is on purpose. The purpose being that as we read through Genesis 10, we see a picture of the breadth of humanity as they begin to spread throughout all the earth. We see the significant numbers of spread, the significant growth in families, and we begin to see exactly what God had promised in terms of spreading and filling the earth as God commanded. When we turn back to Genesis 11, however, we see a very different style of writing, and the reason being is because it's a different type of genealogy. As we already read, we see Noah here, we see Moses here, rather, give just a select few names in the series. We see Noah, Moses here focused not on all three sons of Noah, but focused on one son, Shem. And we see the author here, with each generation, give only one representative. The resulting effect of Genesis 11, then, is quite different from Genesis 10, isn't it? For instead of overwhelming us with numbers, there's what some authors call a telescoping effect of this type of genealogy, meaning the author makes those distant figures, those ancient figures, suddenly appear much closer to us. It's as if he's collapsing history down into one manageable genealogy, and in so doing, he's making us, in particular the original audience, feel as if we are just one breath away from these people. As if we're just the next chapter in this relatively brief, relatively short story. The effect of this, then, is unlike Genesis 10. 
And in order to see how it's connected to the promise then, we look not to Genesis 10, but turn back with me, if you will, to Genesis 5. For it's in Genesis 5 that really you see the genealogy that the author is referring to. It's in Genesis 5 that you see really more of a mirroring of languages, the same patterns, the same focus. For in Genesis 5, like Genesis 11, you see a a brief genealogy offered. A genealogy, again, where there's just one descendant with each generation. And more importantly, it's a genealogy that's not focused on a great number of sons, that is, all of the family's lineage, but rather it's focused on one son. And what son is that in Genesis 5? It's Seth. Seth, the son of Adam. And the author here traces the descendants of Adam through Seth until you get down ten generations to Noah. Now, why would the author do that? Why focus on Seth? Well, he does that because Seth represents more than just a people group. Seth represents the chosen line. For as you perhaps recall, it is through Seth, not Cain, through which that promised seed of redemption is passed down. And so in order to show how the seed of redemption survived after Cain, the author gives us the line of Seth and says, see, the line survived. God is still at work. The promise is being passed down until you get to the figure of Noah. It is no accident then that as we come to Genesis chapter 11, we begin once again with Noah. And we see that that same promise of God, that same blessed seed of redemption is still very much alive and well. Even after the flood, even after the Tower of Babel, even after all those foolish and wicked acts of man, the family line persists. And it is passed down, not through any other son of Noah, except through Shem. And so just as the author did in Genesis 5, yet again in Genesis 11, he causes us to see this genealogy means something. It's significant. It's telling us the seed is alive, the blessing is alive, the promise is alive. And as it does this, suddenly these names of figures become much more exciting than they once were, don't they? For suddenly we understand this is not just some random list of names that is intended to overwhelm us. These individuals, while we may know nothing else about them, they are links in that essential chain that connects humanity back to the garden and eventually will connect them to their promised Messiah. Eventually will connect them to that promised seed. As such, you can imagine why this particular genealogy would be so important, would be so valuable to that original audience. For it was a reminder to them that God never stopped working. That the same plan he had in the garden is being fulfilled generation by generation by generation, even though these individuals in this genealogy could have had no idea what they were doing in terms of fulfillment. God knew. And God shows us in this text then that this genealogy, while perhaps initially meaningless to most of us, demonstrates yet another vital connection to that blessing, to that promise of God. And as such, the genealogy of 11 gives us good reason to rejoice, for it shows us that blessed continuity of God's plan. Having said that, of course, we understand this isn't the only connection to the story. We understand that the story of humanity is not entirely rosy and bright, is it? For as I mentioned already, just as this genealogy demonstrates a connection to the promise or the blessing, it also demonstrates a clear connection to the curse, doesn't it? That connection can be seen in in at least a couple of ways. The easiest way to see it is in the ongoing reality of death. You remember death, don't you? That concept that is so natural to us to understand today that is an inevitable part of our own world, but something that was not natural to original creation. No, it was something that was only introduced after the fall of man, after their own sinful disobedience. As you recall back in Genesis chapter 3, as a result of the fall, God tells Adam in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, Cursed is the ground because of you and toil you eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles that shall grow for you, you will eat the plants of the field. By sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. Death was the result of the curse. 
And as we saw back in Genesis chapter 5 in the genealogy we just referenced, death is really the theme. For if you remember back when we covered that genealogy some months ago, the refrain found repeatedly in Genesis 5 is, and he died, and he died, and he died. And over and over and over again, the author reminds us they died because of sin. Thus, when we come to Genesis 11, we see to a certain extent, that same death at play. We see people are still dying, and we must understand, as I think all of us who have lost anyone still understand, that death is always tragic. For it's always a reminder of how unnatural sin is. It is a reminder of the fact that things have gone terribly wrong. And every death is a clear and vivid reminder from God of that fact. Tragically, however, We understand that the eventual death of humanity was not the only result of the curse. For as the story continued on past Genesis 3, we see the wickedness of man does not subside, does it? It only increases. In fact, it increases to the point, of course, where God sends Noah, or at least uses Noah, as he sends the flood. And if you perhaps recall back to Genesis chapter 6, we read this statement of God. Genesis chapter 6, the statement of God regarding that wickedness of man and what it would mean. For there in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, we read, The Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. As we reference back in Genesis chapter 6, that 120 years is debated amongst scholars. Some people believe it, it simply referred to the amount of time between choosing Noah and sending the flood. But most other commentators agree that it also speaks to the decreasing longevity of which people live. It speaks to the fact that sin has that compounding effect where life itself becomes shorter and shorter and shorter. We understand that reality today, but we must remember that it was not always the case. Yet when we see Genesis 11, and if you pay careful attention, you see that effect in real time. For in Genesis 5, we read of how people lived six, seven, eight hundred years. Yet as we read through this genealogy in 11, we see that number ticking down with each successive generation, don't we? For at the beginning, we see how people like Shem lived for 500 years after becoming the father of Aparkshad in a similar way. The next generation, Sheila, lives hundreds and hundreds of years, 403 years after he becomes the father. But if you continue to walk through the line, you see that number does not remain so high. By the time you come towards the end of the genealogy, even the section that we just read, you come to say Nahor, and we read, Nahor lived 29 years and became the father of Terah. Nahor lived 119 years. And the same thing seems to hold true for most coming generations. Generations who still live longer than most of us live today, but significantly shorter than they once did. Again, if if you're just an observer in nature who has no concept of Scripture, you might wonder, why is that? Uh, Maybe there's a lack of resources suddenly, and maybe that comes into play. But more significantly, we understand this shortened lifespan is not simply the result of a lack of resources suddenly where they're living now. It's a result of sin. It's a result of the curse. And so even as we read this genealogy and see the connection to that promise, we also see a connection to that curse. And we see as readers, nothing's changed. The story is continuing going on and goes forward in the exact manner that God said it would go forward. Point being, God is equally at work both in passing down that righteous seed but also overseeing the effects of the curse. It's such an important thing for us to remember. For we live in a world today where, yet again, so many events can seem chaotic, can seem random, can seem by chance, and yet, in the same way that Genesis 11 is intricately connected to both the promise and the curse, so too, everything that happens to us today is in some way connected back to that blessing, is in some way a reflection of that curse. God never stopped working out his plan. He is sovereignly in control of absolutely every detail. And in every detail, he is revealing himself. In every detail, he is reminding us of the fact that his plan is unfolding. In many ways, 
this reality, if we understand it right, should be a blessing to us. For it is a reminder that nothing is chaotic in this life. And it's a reminder that even if we cannot see it, that we each, who are believers, play an integral role. For each one of us is a link in that chain. Each one of us is a vital member of the body of Christ. And if we understand that, if we understand that we are in God's story, we then understand there are no wasted chapters in the story. There are no wasted characters. There's no B plot, C plot, D plot. It's all God's plan and it is all vitally important and awe-inspiring. And so we are reminded the importance of learning to see ourselves in that story. We are reminded the importance of in both blessings and in curses, we can see God is at work. And even if we cannot understand the direction is headed, we know there's that divine author. Yet having said that, having established that continuity and seen that the story is being told, many people might still wonder, well, is this a type of story I really want to get in on? Because let's face it, there's a lot of details in chapters 1 through 11 that seem a bit grim, to put it lightly. I mean, if you ask your average person what stories stick out most to them in these 11 chapters, what stories are going to come to mind? I mean, creation maybe. That certainly comes into play. What other two famous stories have we gone through in the last few months? You have the story of the flood and the story of Babel. I would argue these are the two most well-known stories out of these first few chapters of Genesis, are they not? And in both cases, can we honestly say that these are stories that we really would love to find ourselves in the midst of? I mean, outside of being Noah or his family, not a lot of characters you want to be in the story of the flood because pretty much everyone dies. It's not a story you want to see yourself in. Same thing with Babel. It's a story of the folly of man. It's the story of wrath. And as such, and In so many ways, as we see so frequently, many people take stories like the flood or Babel or any other number of stories about judgment and wrath in Scripture, and they walk away with the belief that the story of God, if it does exist, is a terribly dark one. One marked by judgment, one marked by wrath, one marked by destruction. It's particularly true in the Old Testament. And as a result, many people, even if they acknowledge the reality of a story might see might walk away thinking count me out i want nothing to do with such a vicious story that ends in the gruesome end of most of humanity yet upon closer examination yet again as we consider genesis 1 through 10 and in particular as we come to this genealogy in chapter 11 what we see that the what we see is that the story is not tied together with a theme of destruction not at all Rather, what we see ultimately is this plan, this story, throughout it all has a, gracious, has a thread of grace that is tying it together. Has the characteristic, the virtue of, of love and God's mercy, that is what characterizes the vast majority of God's work amongst his creatures. And while that gracious thread might not be immediately apparent in Genesis 11, yet again, I think if we look closely, we see the thread there. And just as before, I think we see it in at least two ways. The first is, is what I would say, for lack of better words, just the gracious tone of Genesis 11. And as I say that, I understand when most of us read a genealogy, we're not breaking down the emotional tone of, of the text, are we? It's about as dry as any section of Scripture could possibly be. It's literally a list of names. That's it. So how on earth can we read grace into the tone of Genesis 11? That's a fair question. But I think we see it if, again, we read back at Genesis 5. For as I mentioned earlier in Genesis 5, if you read through that genealogy, you see this one refrain over and over and over again. We see it, for instance, in Genesis chapter 5, verse 4. The days of Adam after he became the father of Seth were 800 years. He had other sons and daughters, so... All the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. You jump ahead to verse 8. So all the years of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Verse 11, all the years of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. As we said earlier, over and over and over again, that's the refrain. That's the point the author is driving home. That is what he wants you to see. That as a result of man's sin, death reigns. 
And the focus of that genealogy makes sense in light of where he's headed, doesn't it? For where does that genealogy end? With whom does that genealogy focus in on the end in Genesis 5? It's Noah. And so if you're building up to the story of Noah and the flood, it makes sense that you need your audience to remember why the flood came. You need your audience to understand the effects of sin and the wrath that we all deserve. Thus, that refrain of death makes sense. Yet as you come to chapter 11, you find a surprising difference. For while sin still persists, and while people are still dying, you find that that refrain is missing entirely. While the death is presumed, of course, for it speaks of how long they lived, all we see here is focus after focus after focus of, of life. We see a list of successful families. Families that have sons and daughters. Families that expand. Families that live on and persist until you come to what figure? Abram. A man that will mean something entirely different to humanity than Noah did. Only. For while Noah represented judgment upon all of humanity, what will Abram ultimately represent? Salvation. Grace. The covenant through which, as we'll examine next week, all peoples of the nations will be blessed. With that in mind, we can understand why the tone might be a bit more gracious in Genesis 11. For the end result is beautiful, is glorious. It is salvation. And so even in listing off these names, we see this gracious tone. As the author is not simply reminding us of our sin, but he's reminding us of the faithfulness and grace of God. He's reminding us that gracious seed, that, that righteous seed, is still being passed down, even though, as we will see, these people are far from righteous themselves. But God's at work. And the reason why he's at work is not because you and I deserve it. It's not because humanity proved that they, des- they deserve to be saved. It's because of grace and grace alone. And so while it might not jump off the page to you, you see it even in the language used. But even beyond that gracious tone, if you examine these names as we've seen in weeks past, as you start taking out these figures and understanding what these people meant to others, you also see that grace in this incredible provision that God is offering his people. Many of these people we know nothing about, and thus it is hard to see grace exude from their legacies. And yet two people I want us to see, I think, do represent that grace. The first is the figure Peleg. Peleg makes an appearance there at the end of verse 17 as the son of Eber, and then we read in verse 18 and 19, Peleg lived 30 years, became the father of Ru. Peleg, Peleg lived 209 years after he became the father of Ru, and he had other sons and daughters. Peleg is an important figure in this genealogy because he represents the break from the genealogy of Genesis 10. For if you turn back just a page in in Genesis chapter 10, you see Peleg is nothing more than really a footnote as a reference to the Tower of Babel. For in Genesis chapter 10, we read in verse 25 that two sons were born to Eber. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. That's Babel. And his brother's name was Joktan. Then verse 26 picks up Jockton and follows the line of Jockton down. As we come to Genesis 11, however, we see Peleg plays a different role. For rather than just being a footnote to the Tower of Babel, suddenly we see the author focusing on his lineage, his son Ru, and the grandsons he had through Ru. The question is, why? Why break off from that genealogy? I think the obvious answer, of course, is ultimately who comes through this line of Peleg, not Joktan. For who ultimately will come through the line of Peleg? It's Abram. Therefore, it is his line that is ultimately more important in the story of redemption. It is ultimately Peleg that God uses to provide that righteous seed that ultimately leads to the birth of Abram. Even more significantly and more incredibly is the fact that it is a name like Peleg and Ru, not Joktan or others, that appear in other genealogies that are infinitely more important. Those genealogies being those not of Noah, not of Abram, but of Jesus Christ. 
Because as we come to the New Testament, and as we come to passages like Luke chapter 3, we see the genealogy of Christ as the primary concern. And towards the end of this genealogy of Jesus Christ, the one righteous seed who provides salvation, we read of this lineage. I'll just pick it up in verse 33 of Luke 3. There we read the son of Amminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah. He's working backwards in history, you see. The son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Heber, and the son of Shelah. And you can go on. I read that again, in essence, to repeat somewhat what we said earlier. To remind us, again, even if you know nothing else of Peleg, you know his name is preserved forever in the genealogy of the Savior of, of humanity. There can be no greater legacy than that. Did, did Peleg understand that was the role he was playing? Certainly not. He would have had no clue. Could Peleg have any understanding of even what Abram would one day become? No. Not a chance. Yet here he is, forever enshrined in this passage as a picture of provision, as a reminder of God chose Peleg, God chose this line to give his line through. And through Peleg, God provided, ultimately, Abraham. In a similar manner, speaking to that gracious provision, you look a little further down the line to Nahor. Nahor, who is the name of Terah's father, but also, I think more importantly to the unfolding story, the, bro- the brother of Abraham. We read of Nahor, the brother of Abraham. There, beginning in verse 27, these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father in Terah. Uh, in Terah in the land of his birth, and Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of, Nahor, uh, the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Sarai was, born, was barren. She had no child. Like so many other figures in the Old Testament, at least figures listed off in these genealogies, we don't know a lot about Nahor. We don't. But the original audience of this text would have known that name very well. The reason for that is not because of what is provided here in Genesis 11, but because of what unfolds with Nahor's own family line. For while Nahor does not give, uh, for while Nahor does not give that seed down to Abraham, we see that he too gets married. And we see throughout the book of Genesis that he appears, by all evidence, to to build up quite a successful family. It appears that the Nahor and his family would have settled in northwest Mesopotamia, and archaeological digs have discovered a variety of cities that appear to be named after Nahor, or at least after his descendants, meaning Nahor seems to have been at least a fairly big deal in his immediate circles. More importantly, however, for this ongoing story, is not the land that he settled in, but rather the descendants that came from him. For while we do not see it yet, if we jump ahead later on in the book of Genesis, we see that Nahor ultimately gives his lineage down to about 12 other sons, 12 other figures. And it is through this line that you have other wives that will be vital roles for future patriarchs of the faith. You see women like Rebecca come from Nahor's family line. You see other women that come out of that lineage used by God to preserve the righteous line of Abram. What you see in Nahor then is another son of Terah who settles in a completely different region, builds up his own family, his own success, and yet even he then is then brought back into the fold in God's gracious plan to continue to provide sustenance, to provide provision, to provide wives, to provide that ongoing necessity so that the line of Abraham could continue. And so again, while we read of Nahor and most of us know nothing else, the original audience would read that name. They would say, oh, okay, that's that's the guy. That's the guy we'll read about later on in Genesis. That's the one that God will continue to use for generations to come. And in a similar way that God used Peleg, so too, again, as we come to Nahor, we have to assume that he would have had no idea how God would use him. He had no idea the significance of the region that he would build up. And he certainly would have no clue of what his great-great-granddaughters or who his great-great-granddaughters would marry. Nahor couldn't have known that. 
But God did know that. And that's why God gave him the children he gave him. That's why God led him to, to settle the territory that he led him to settle the territory in. God did this, yet again, as a demonstration of gracious provision. And you can imagine how the original audience would have read of these figures and they could see for they understood, oh, this is how God built up our nation. They could see, oh, that's how, how God eventually preserved our great patriarchs of the faith. And if they can see how God used these no-name figures to preserve them, they could then have that optimism as they went to the promised land. They could remember, okay, God, God is in control. And he works in such gracious ways for his people to provide for us his people, and he will never leave us nor forsake us. He has proven that from the very beginning. As we consider that in our own lives today, this is, again, so vitally important. For it speaks to the biblical necessity of optimism regarding our future. And optimism is not a word I think many of us would use when we talk about our outlook in our own nation, in our own neighborhoods. Many of us, I trust, can look at the world around us and and get caught up and how disappointed we are. And we can get caught up in these conversations of saying, remember when? Remember when our nation was so much better? Remember when churches were so much stronger? Remember when this happened? Remember when that happened? And we start buying into this narrative that suggests things once upon a time were magical and wonderful and God was gracious, but now things have just gone to pot. And it's just going to get worse. And as we talk that way, we can adopt this cynical attitude towards others and towards the world as a whole and we can sound just as hopeless and uninspired as the most godless individual in our society the difference of course between us is that godless individual who has no concept of god's sovereign plan has every reason to be hopeless he has every reason to be cynical Believer, you have zero reasons to be cynical. For you know that God's grace is always at work. You know that every event comes through his hand. And you know that even though you cannot see that end result, that it is glorious. Because it is always characterized by his grace, by his love, by his justice, by his mercy. And so as believers, we must be marked by this optimism. We must not join in society that says, let us eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, but rather we must say, let us celebrate, for yesterday we were dead, but today we live. And we will live on in all eternity with our Savior Jesus Christ. Believers, God has opened our eyes to the fact that we know that while that plan of God is long, it bends towards glory, it bends towards eternal life. And so we trust in that. And we see grace in genealogies. We see grace in difficult times. We see grace in good times. We see it because we see the hand of God is always working out his perfect plan. Having said that still though, as we look at Genesis 11, as we consider how the plan has already unfolded in Genesis 1 through 10, as we consider what we already know of the text moving forward, The natural question we must ask is always, well, while we know how God has worked, while we know how God will work, how how is God going to get us there? What is the pathway of this plan? What could this possibly look like day to day? And just as we've seen countless times already in Genesis, and just as God continues to reveal countless times throughout his word, what we find is, is that God works out his perfect plan not through the pathways that we would ever expect or anticipate. But he works his plan out through the most surprising of means, through the most awe-inspiring of pathways. This has always been the case. And we see it as the case yet again here in Genesis 11. We see that surprising pathway in that immediate genealogy of Abraham where we begin our time. Let us read again. Verse 27 through the end of the chapter. These are the generations of Terah. 
Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. They went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years. Terah died in Haran. As we look through this immediate genealogy of Abram, we again find that it is marked with complete surprise regarding the picks that God makes. Surprise both in the father of Abram as well as surprise in the choice of Abram himself. As you look at the, the person of Terah, at first glance it might be hard to really figure out why he's such a surprise. What would make him such an unsuspecting figure to give, to, to give lineage to this chosen one, Abram? But as we consider him a bit more and see what the text reveals both here and elsewhere, we see Terah had very little going for him. We see it immediately just in how old he was when he gave birth. We read these verses earlier. In verse 26, I say he gave birth, but you understand what I mean. Genesis eleven twenty-six. Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. 70 years. Not quite as old as Abram and Sarai ultimately will be, but that's old. Even compared to the rest of the genealogy, you see other figures giving birth 20, 30 years. 70 years? Really, Terah? Took you a while. That seems like an odd choice. Not only that, but what we know from Scripture is that even Terah's home life, if you will, seems at least, from what we can tell, a bit questionable. What can we tell about the way he raised Abram or raised his children? Well, here's what we know from the text, that his hometown, or at least where he lived for a while, is Ur, as in Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, that name means very little to most of us. But you see Joshua pick up this little tidbit of information in Joshua 24. And here are these words of Joshua describing that area and regarding that person, Terah. In Joshua chapter 24, beginning in verse 2, we read, Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your father lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. And it continues from there, of course, and develops the history of Israel. What do we know about Terah? What can you tell me about Terah? Well, he was pretty old when he finally had kids. And for his hometown, he picked a place that's known for its idolatrous practices. Terah was not regarded as some great godly figure. His faith is not noted in this text. In fact, most people assume that his family lineage would have participated in the making of these idols. From an outside observer's opinion, then, Terah is the last person you think would raise up this great man of faith, Abraham. And yet, Terah is the one that God chooses. Yet, even as we already mentioned, even with that choice in mind, the choice of Abraham seems even more bizarre because there were at least two other options in the story. Now, one of those options, to be fair, dies fairly quickly. We read Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth, but at least he had Lot pretty early on. Maybe Lot would be the guy. But in addition to Haran, you have this other son, Nahor. And as I mentioned, Nahor appeared to be a successful figure. He gets married. He has at least 12 kids, we learn later on in Genesis. Nahor appears to be at least a decent candidate to lead the people of God, ultimately. And yet, he too is left unchosen. That, of course, then leaves us with which son? Abraham? And as I asked you, what can you tell me about Terah? What can you tell me about Abraham at this point? Tell me about his wife. Tell me about the way that God's going to use this man and his wife to pass down that righteous seed, to build a great family. Well, let me look at the text says here that Sarai was barren, and in case you didn't figure out what that meant, the author adds, she had no child. The author needs us to see 
that there is no earthly hope for any descendants to come from Abraham. Abraham, the father of, by what we can tell, an idolater, living in a land of idolatry, marries a barren woman who has no ability to conceive, no ability to have kids, and this is your guy. This is the son that God chooses, through whom, as we will see later, God says he will make his descendants outnumber the stars and the sky. Yet again, as outside observers, we must admit that if we were given a choice of descendants, if we were told, hey, choose someone from this line that will be used to be a powerful leader, that will be used to have many kids, that will be used to build a great nation, none of us, none of us would choose Abram. Because Abram was a dead end. Thus, as we come to the end of chapter 11, it appears as if we are coming to a tragically anticlimactic ending to God's story. For how on earth can there be a next chapter when the chosen one is married to a barren woman? But we know exactly how there's a next chapter. And the people of God who originally read the story would have known exactly how there was a next chapter. Because as shocking as a choice as this would have been to everyone in attendance, we know this is exactly how God works. For God routinely chooses those individuals that no one else would choose. He uses resources that from the world's standpoint are worthless and weak and empty. He chooses a nation that is made up of a bunch of dead ends. But he does so for a very specific purpose. That purpose being, as he says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you, kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out of, by his mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God didn't choose Israel because they were significant. God chose Israel because they were insignificant. Paul in 1 Corinthians reminds us, God does not choose you because you're strong. He did not choose you because you're mighty. He did not choose you because you are significant. He chooses all of us because we are insignificant. We are weak. We are helpless. We bring nothing to the table. But as a result of our salvation, we know that God and God alone gets the glory. And so as surprising as it is to us, as we come back to Genesis 11, as we read this list of names, we find yet again, this is more than just a list of names. This is the plan of God that reflects his infinite glory. And we rejoice in these names, even if we know nothing else about them other than the fact that they are links in that chain. They are the unfolding chapters in God's unfolding narrative. And they're a reminder of the fact that our God is good. He is awesome. He is worthy to be praised. As we see those surprising paths, we are reminded yet again of how this ought to change us still today. For it still changes the way we view God. It changes the way we view ourselves with humility. And it should change the way we view society. For it reminds us that as Christians, we do not prize the same characteristics that our world prizes. We do not put our faith in the physically strong we do not follow someone because they're just a great leader by the world's standards. We prize humility. We prize dependency in Christ. Those are the people we lift up. Those are the people we follow. And while the world scoffs at us and mocks us for we choose strategies that appear entirely illogical, we continue to pursue those things and follow those strategies because we know this is the strategy of God. It always has been and it always will be. And we know that while we cannot fully appreciate it or understand it, that by that strategy, God will always be glorified and his plan will always be executed to perfection. And so as we consider all of this unbeliever, please know that you indeed are in a story. This is language our society loves to, to use, but the story is not your own choosing. It is not a story that you are writing. It is the story of the infinite, almighty creator of the universe. And the calling of this story is the calling he gives to everyone. It's the calling to repent of your sin 
to put your faith in the one who can save you, Jesus Christ. As I say every week, if you have not yet done that, I beg you to do that now. Please do not let another moment pass without repenting of your sin and finding life in Jesus. As always, if you need any any help with that, any questions, find me after the service. Find one of our elders at the welcome desk. Talk to someone today. And for my brothers and sisters in Christ, as we read it, another genealogy, let it be a reminder to us to learn to remember to look for the active hand of God. For this plan still unfolds, for he is still at work in all of us, regardless of how difficult times get, get God's work is, go, is it's happening in your life, in my life. And as we learn to observe that, remember to, to look for those examples of grace. You may not see it now, but you can surely look back in the years of your life and you can point out those moments where, where God's gracious hand is seen. And you can say, I didn't see it then, but I can see it now, so surely Surely while I cannot see that grace now, God is still at work. Grace is still to be found. And as we see that grace, let us daily remember to anticipate the end of the story that is infinitely greater than anything we could ever possibly imagine. Infinitely more beautiful. Infinitely more gracious. And we be confident it will happen for it comes as a result not of our own hand but the hand of our almighty Father. The story God has told us is, in fact, a long one, and the final conclusion can be difficult to see. But by God's grace and by what he has revealed in Scripture, we know the story is there. And we know that while the pathway might be surprising, its end is always in glory and life and peace. Let us pray. Father in heaven, We are humbled by your word. We could never predict the manners in which you work. And yet we stand in awe of your plan. A plan that is revealed not simply in grand narratives, but a plan that's found even in detailed genealogies. We praise you for the fact that you're sovereign even over that. As always, I pray for the salvation of the lost who are here today. God, open their eyes to the gospel. Save them from their sins. For your people here, God, might we be encouraged, might we be inspired to understand that your sovereign hand has been at work and it will always be at work, and so might we leave this place ready to serve you, knowing that we all play an integral part, God. We praise you, God, and we thank you for putting us in your narrative, and we pray that you bring this narrative to a close soon and very soon. Jesus, return and take us now. For we daily desire to see you face to face, and we daily desire to celebrate that conclusion. Jesus, it is in your name we pray these things. Amen.